The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm Carl Quintanilla, live at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Deirdre Bosa joins us today from One Market in San Francisco. The CEOs of Frontier and Synopsys are ahead this hour, along with the head of Citizens, JMP Securities. But let's start with a look at where stocks are holding on to strong gains today. You can see the Dow's up six-tenths of one percent. The S&P 500 touching a fresh all-time high today. It's up one and a half percent. And the Nasdaq, the outperformer, up more than two percent. The 10-year yield at above four percent, 4.3. Carl? Meantime, let's begin with the big stock story today. Of course, that's NVIDIA rallying today on the back of strong earnings, where it saw revenue surge by more than 200 percent. Joining us here at Post 9, head of Citizens JMP Securities, Mark Lehman's with us. Uh, welcome, Mark. It's great to have you back. Thanks, Carl. Uh, is it OK that the market's pivoting so much around this one bellwether? Uh, I, I think it's OK, um, certainly, that NVIDIA is moving the way it is today. But it, it isn't just one. I mean, we're seeing a broad rally for some of the beneficiaries of AI and beneficiary of tech and some of the perceived beneficiaries. Um, but obviously, there's some people in the background being cautious and a little bit worried about, boy, is this too much too fast? Right. Hi, what do you make of the market's ability to decouple from rate worries, even if it's on the back of a, a small selection subset of earnings? Uh, I think it's impressive. I, th- I think we had a, a spell um, of worry, um, obviously, a few weeks ago. Um, this comfort with this kind of above four um, current rate uh, is surprising to me. Um, I think we're going to get more comfortable that the economy is better and the consumer is more resilient. And so that kind of rapid pause may be a slower pause and a little later pause. And I think the market's getting comfortable with that. Right. Would it be comfortable with no cuts this year? That's, that's been creeping into our conversations, too. I, it's a great question. I doubt it. I mean, I look back at the mid to early 90s when I started my career. Rates were here. And, and we had the tech revolution, as you know. Uh, we had some things, the Wintel monopoly, which we don't talk about anymore for obvious reasons. But that was the dawning of that age. And we're in a dawning of an age again here that I think will show that kind of uh, opportunity for the real, real um, upside that we're already seeing in the marketplace. Right. And certainly NVIDIA, Mark, underscored that. Um, we're all focused, of course, on what NVIDIA is doing and seemingly powering the rest of the markets. But there are some other areas that, you know, deserve a second look, like Palo Alto, right, earlier this week, showed some cracks. Everyone is agonizing over whether NVIDIA is going to beat, how much they're going to beat expectations. But then you have sort of a Palo Alto, which was just a good old story of weakness and not fulfilling some of those guidance expectations. What do you make of it and how much attention should we give stories like Palo Alto? Well, it's the right point. I mean, Palo Alto was a darling of the marketplace, and they shocked the world, obviously, when they made that announcement, as well as some of the verbiage around it. And I think it's a reminder that the market is more priced towards perfection and more priced towards getting everything right, and it's hard to get everything right. I mean, even Recently, when you had the announcement about the uh, chat GPT and the AI visuals, uh, Adobe went down 8% that day. Okay, so Mm -hmm. Adobe was the perceived loser very rapidly, and I'm not sure that's going to ruin their video business, but that's the kind of risk you have with a market that's this high. 
And so it kind of begs the question, one that we've been asking for you know at least a year now, is it sort of the Magnificent Seven or Six or whatever you want to call it versus everyone else? Where is the growth narrative here? Does NVIDIA sort of put some fire under everyone else or does everyone else look not great compared to what NVIDIA is delivering, which is profitability and growth? We're at a moment where companies are trying to deliver on those margins and growth is sort of being held off until a little later. NVIDIA powers the engines, right? But the engines are run by big companies that we talked about here. I mean, Carl and I talked about Salesforce six months ago and talked about what Mark Benioff said. It's all about AI. He has those conversations all day long. You look at ServiceNow, uh, which we use internally at Citizens, that's already showing efficiencies internally about how much work has to take place for everything we do along the way. You look at a company like Nice Systems, which is a company that's benefiting from that as well. And, and I can go on and on. Um, I, NVIDIA is the engine that is powering that right now. And they're the clear winner in that. And I think the question is, who is going to benefit? And those laggards who have not embraced the possible here and are not changing their models rapidly are going to fall behind. It's just going to happen rapidly um, for some of those companies. And the winners are going to be bigger winners because it's just that much more efficient. Is it too early to think about the effect on employment? And do you expect it to be material, I guess? I, I, of course you worry about that. You, you, and I don't think you're just going to plug a bunch of NVIDIA uh, chips into a machine and we're all going to stay home and play video games. I just don't see that. But we're going to make it more efficient. And I'll, I'll, I'll get a couple examples. I mean, last night I had dinner with my nephew and he's in med school. They're talking about AI. They're talking about what that means for his career and how much more efficient he will be as a doctor for transcribing information and hearing information and putting all those patients times 10,000 doctors into the system. Are we going to need fewer doctors? Probably not. But for the lower end of the labor force, I think they're going to have to get more highly educated. That is an absolute fact. And I think that is the conundrum. I don't think we're going to need fewer workers. We're going to need fewer, um, we're going to need more, better, challenging workers. Right. And the workforce needs to adopt to that. And they will. Um, just because we created uh, spreadsheets 30 years ago, we don't need fewer accountants. <laughs> yes, that is the, that's the general bullish take on what it will do to employment. Overall, uh, we've got a consumer that's more optimistic. We've got record issuance on investment grade. We're getting better activity in IPOs, better activity in M&A. Your argument is that the bulls would take that over rate cuts any day. I think the economy being strong, and maybe too strong, is certainly more, um, that's the optimistic scenario versus saying, boy, we're going to have a soft landing. We don't even talk about the soft landing, let alone the hard landing anymore. I haven't heard that in a bit. And I think the consumer's resilience, maybe this is one of those instances where, and again, technology is the biggest deflating uh, aspect of our economy. We saw it again in the 90s and 2000s. This is a deflationary trend that is just taking place. Right. Well, there's the productivity bulls certainly hoping it's going to stay that way. Mark, a good discussion to start the hour. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Good to see you. Appreciate Deep. it. And that's certainly the message here in Silicon Valley as well, more productivity. Let's stick with chips for a moment. Interesting comments from OpenAI CEO Sam Altman at yesterday's Intel Foundry event. Christina Pertzenelvis was there and joins me with more, it feels like he's just trolling us at this point. He says, the report comes out, not he says, seven billion, but then he- Trillion, I mean. Trillion. <sighs> Big difference. Big difference. We're talking trillions now. We, yeah, 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 we gotta yeah. get used to it. Then he tweets, F it, eight trillion, right? And then yesterday he said something very different. Yes, yesterday, um, it was a little different. It was a fireside chat between OpenAI CEO Sam Altman and Intel CEO. It wasn't open, it was open to the media, meaning I could sit there, but you couldn't record. And he pretty much wanted to set the record straight last night in this chat. 
He's disputing claims that he's seeking $7 trillion for chip development, as you mentioned. Wall Street Journal first came out with that. Altman said, quote, don't pay too much attention to reports on his funding, though added the numbers will be big. He even said, we can agree on that. Uh, he said, though, and this is an insult, to her, it feels bad when you talk about the media. He said he had to, if he had to sit and correct every mistake and reports in the media, he wouldn't be able to do his job. And I but he fueled that exactly, speculation. Exactly. And I think he's just backtracking because the number was so astronomically high. And then you had Jensen Wong, uh, the CEO yeah. of NVIDIA, who was in Dubai very recently, and he almost poured a little cold water on that uh, 5 to $7 trillion number by saying, oh, Moore's <laughs> Law, you know, we're going to need more compute, but it's going to get smaller and smaller, so it'll go from $1 trillion to $2 trillion in I five mean, years. Seven, $7 trillion was always a ridiculous number, as soon as you saw it in print. And I think everyone knew that. Um, but he's almost taking like this Musk-like approach to fundraising or company building. Um, he says something completely absurd, a number, like, you know, even when he posts, maybe eight, eight trillion. Yeah, with the F word, yeah. But if <laughs> he achieves like 10% of that, that is still hugely consequential for one of the hardest, most complicated industries in the world. And hats off to him for doing this and taking advantage of the opportunities in the market right now. He has the name, he has the hype behind it, OpenAI, and then you have the hunger, not only from, let's say, the enterprises that we keep talking mm -hmm. about in America, but sovereign wealth funds, governments all around the globe. Right. Uh, and specifically with OpenAI, they're working with United Arab Emirates government, and it's not just them. There's a lot of money out there to invest, and they want to invest in AI, yeah. and if OpenAI Open is saying, hey, we're going to create a fundraise um, a, a foundation, we're going to build all this chip capacity, there's, you know, not enough supply. Right. And he's tapping that market right now, getting the funding, then good on him. Well, it raises a host of national security concerns uh, as well. Yes. But let's go back to the T, the trillions, right? When we saw that report between five, seven trillion dollars, it was crazy. But we also heard from Jensen Huang last night using the T as well. Trillion. He sees a trillion dollar opportunity in enterprise AI. So is that sort of where we are now in this Cycle? I guess if everybody's saying that. I, Intel CEO didn't use trillions. He said, it, you know, billions for, well, he for, yeah, for these manufacturing <laughs> hubs in, in the United States. Intel promised $100 billion to spend, Micron $40 billion. Uh, so well, we were throwing around the billions number, and now we're just throwing the trillions. For Jensen Wong, he's talking about the global market, uh, saying $2 trillion in five years, specifically for data centers. And that's not only because we're going to be modernizing all the yeah. data centers, let's say, here in CNBC, but we're going to be creating these large language models that will require more expensive right. uh, infrastructure. And so that'll be the other extra trillion dollars, which every time I say trillion, I'm just like, whoa. Well, let me give one more before we go. Options traders have been betting on NVIDIA stock reaching $1,300. That would give it a market cap of, of well over three, $3 trillion. Oh, dollars, so. God, I couldn't do math that fast then. I guess, wow, well, there you there have you it. The, I thought twelve fifty was the streets high, and then you're seeing $1,300. Options, oh, options yes, market, of yes. course. but uh, And they you know dictate a lot of the stock moves in these prices. But uh, well, certainly more big capital T for this hour. <laughs> Carl. Guys, thanks. Uh, speaking of AI and chips, the CEO of a chip designer, Synopsys, is coming up after the break. AI continues to drive revenue growth. NVIDIA, a customer, this morning raising guidance after a Q1 beat, one of the top gainers on the S&P. Plus, we'll get to this move in Rivian, that weaker EV demand, part of that equation, as Money Movers continues after this.
one, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Rivian shares lowered today after reporting results in that production guide. Our Phil LeBeau talked with the CEO this morning on Squawk and joins us with more. Hi again, Phil. Hey, Carl, when you take a look at shares of Rivian, the stock down now now 94% compared to its all-time high of $172, which happened shortly after it went public in November of 2021. And take a look at what's really happened here. This is a market where luxury EVs, and that's what Rivian is. It's a luxury-priced EV. It's just not selling right now. Their loss per vehicle in the fourth quarter, 43,372. On top of that, their guidance for production this year came out to 57,000 vehicles. And that's well below where the street was expecting. The street was expecting production guide of close to 81,000. That's incorrect, that that graphic there. The production guide is not 66,000, it's 57,000. And as you take a look at their annual deliveries, only building 57,000 means they're not going to be getting close to the mid-60s in terms of deliveries this year. They delivered 51,000 last year. Most are going to have to re- bring down their delivery estimates. Here's CEO RJ Scringe talking with us this morning about the changes they're putting in place to lower costs. As we look at 2024, uh, we have a few things playing out. One is we're making a number of changes to the way we operate our plant. Uh, as well as our our material costs, our build of materials. And we'll be shutting down the plant for several weeks in the second quarter to make these changes. So that's an interruption to production. And then we're being very realistic just around the overall number of vehicles being purchased at these price points, uh, in the price range of over $70,000. By the way, shutting down the plant for several weeks in the second quarter, that's been known about for some time. That was not a surprise. That's part of what they're doing in normal Illinois to adjust production. Remember, they also make the electric delivery van that is used by Amazon. That's part of the adjustment in production. They will be unveiling the next generation model, the R2, on March 7th. But keep in mind, that doesn't go into production until the Georgia plant opens up in 2026. So we're a long ways from that mass market next generation model. And, Carl, their market cap is now a little over $10 billion. Remember after the IPO back in 21, market cap was something like $160 billion? Higher market cap than GM and Ford together. And a lot of people at that time said, slow down here. These guys are a long ways from getting to profitability. Look how things have changed uh, um, you know, two and a half years later. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a tough business and a tough new business, uh, Phil. You know, he kept bringing up the idea of high rates affecting purchasing decisions, but didn't really get to the things that we've talked about for a while now, which include range anxiety and infrastructure on the battery charge. Uh, what do you make of that? Uh, my feeling is that high rates, I mean, look, they're going to say what they're going to say in their earnings release. Nobody in the auto industry is going to say high rates alone is the reason that high-priced EVs are not selling. 
Is it a factor? Maybe it's a factor. I think at the end of the day, your early adopters, people who were willing to pay $60,000, $80,000 for an electric vehicle, a first-generation or second-generation electric vehicle, that market has largely tapped out. They're still buying, but they're not, it's not a growth market now. Where you need to see the growth in EVs is in that thirty-five dollars to $45,000 range. And we just don't see many models there. That's the reason why the Model 3 and the Model Y are as successful as they are. They're the closest to mass market priced EVs. And that's what the people are saying right now. They're saying, you know what? If I'm going electric, I got to go at a lower price point. Not a growth market, Phil. Wow. Uh, I couldn't imagine you saying those words a few, few years ago with what the stock and the market cap was doing. Thank you very much. Sure. Sticking with earnings, let's take a look at Synopsis. Surging this morning after delivering a beat on the bottom line, raising its fiscal Q1 it, sorry, it's bottom line for fiscal Q1 and raising guard guidance for the year ahead, all amid strong demand for AI and chip designs from the company's clients across the semiconductor space. Joining us in a first on CNBC interview, Synopsis CEO, Sassine Ghazi. Sassine, it's great to see you. Good morning. Um, lay out for our audience the opportunity for you and for Synopsis as we hear things from Jensen Huang like AI generation factories are going to be in every industry, every company, every region. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> the opportunity we have is actually driven by the amazing momentum with AI as the mega driver. But AI, if you think about AI proliferation, is driving silicon everywhere. And when you listen to Jensen or others, they're talking about the reinvention of compute in order to support the significant workloads that are required in order to go into all the use cases. Right. So NVIDIA is working on, you know, the highest end chip, the GPU. But you also have a view into the efforts of mega cap companies that are developing their own in-house custom silicon. Where are we on that front? Do you expect a Google or Microsoft or a meta chip to be an alternative to NVIDIA in the future? Does it happen? When does it happen? So uh, if you look at hyperscalers as an example, the reason they're investing in their own silicon is to truly optimize towards what's called the workload. That's where they're trying to look at their software application and unlock the possibility by designing their own uh, silicon. Every one of the hyperscalers, uh, we engage very closely with them in order to innovate uh, with their semiconductor investment in order to support uh, those applications and be more efficient, more effective in uh, driving the AI, both in the data center for training or on the edge uh, applications. So, scene, you know, prior to the AI data center obsession, really, uh, around the street, we would talk about end markets. We would talk about gaming and auto and manufacturing and banks uh, and AR, VR. Of, of all those buckets, what's most interesting right now? So let me step back. When you look at what is driving the momentum we have as a business, there are really three factors right now. There's the AI, which we talked about it. Two, there is a silicon proliferation everywhere. And the reason you see silicon everywhere, if you fast forward five, 10 years from now, most markets, uh, I'm talking about uh, industries, are gonna be smarter and connected. The engine behind it is silicon in order to drive that smartness and connectivity. Uh, and the third factor is the one we touched on it. Many system companies, be it hyperscalers, mobile, automotive, industrial, they're trying to optimize 
their uh, user experience, their customer experience, and by customizing it, you optimize from silicon all the way up to the application software that the user end up using. For us, those are significant drivers for our growth, and that's what we see in terms of trends in the industry. Right, but can you, can you ladder those end markets in terms of their uh, aggressiveness? Is there a tip of the spear among that group? Absolutely. Uh, if you look back, say, 10, 15 years ago, uh, the first company that started building silicon, system company building silicon to optimize that experience was Apple. They made an investment in silicon roughly about 14, 15 years ago. Then hyperscalers about seven, eight years ago, almost every hyperscaler is investing in their silicon for that same purpose. Automotive companies right now, they are companies that they are either investing or they're, they're, they're making investments to build their own silicon. Tesla is an example where they pioneered that path. You look at industrial, at aerospace. Uh, those are the, the ones that they're coming into the future because chip design is not easy. It takes a lot of money and a lot of expertise in order to develop a chip. So Zane, we were talking about this inference number out of NVIDIA last night, Jensen Huang saying that um, it made up about 40% of AI revenues versus, you know, training models. And I wonder if you think that NVIDIA can be as dominant in that bucket inference as they have been in uh, training large language models. Yeah, what NVIDIA uh, is able to capture, the training part of AI requires the most sophisticated compute. And that most sophisticated compute, AI, uh, NVIDIA has done a very good job to uh, penetrate that market of uh, training. Uh, of course, you see other names like AMD, Intel, et cetera. They're trying to do the same and have an offering uh, to, to do the same. And you have the hyperscalers. They're trying to build their own AI inference and uh, mm -hmm. training uh, silicon in order to do it. Right. Uh, what we see for sure is that uh, complexity and the demand to continue on delivering the next product uh, to do both the training and the inference is going to continue for the next number of years. Right. So is there going to be more competition then the next phase of this? Absolutely. Because, again, the competition is going to be based on the hunger, the demand, the need yeah. to have a more power efficient, higher performance, yeah. more domain specific type of training or inference. And therefore, you cannot have just one chip to do all these applications. Mm -hmm. You need different type of chips to do it. Right. Well, Sassine, uh, great to get your insights. Thank you. Sassine Ghazi Thank you. of Synopsis. Carl. Thank you. Meantime, Frontier Airlines has seen its stock jump more than 30% just this year as new data shows that airfare prices are up 3% year on year. CEO is going to join us later on this hour. Speaking of travel, watching RCL raising their guidance for the year while talking up demand and the current pricing environment. Shares up better than almost 8%. Back in a minute. In environments where not many people look like you, you will be constantly challenged to prove yourself. So you need to always invest the time to be well prepared. Being a constant learner is what I've loved throughout my life. My incredible mother taught me to always try to treat others the way you would want to be treated and pay it forward, which has certainly influenced my mentorship and sponsorship of others throughout my career. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.
Watching shares of PG&E this morning as California's largest utility company raises rates and restarts its dividend. Our Jane Wells is live outside the only functioning nuclear plant in the state with more on PG&E earnings. Hey, Jane. Hi, Carl. Yeah, I'm outside Diablo Canyon. Yeah, shares are down this morning going into the call, which is happening right now, even though as we look at earnings, uh, earnings and revenues topped estimates uh, for the fourth quarter. 47 cents adjusted EPS. That's up 80 percent from a year ago. Revenues topping seven billion. That's up 31 percent. And they raised earnings estimates for 2024. Now, a lot of this is due to two factors. One, a 13 percent rate increase approved by the state. Guggenheim calls it a Christmas miracle. Uh, and another one is expected this spring. Now, some of that money is going to put over 1,200 miles of power lines underground to avoid causing future wildfires like the deadly campfire in 2018, which put PG&E into bankruptcy. You know, as we've been learning in Maui, these wildfires bring lawsuits and new rules and they increase utility operating costs. But a state watchdog says PG&E rates have more than doubled in a decade. One in five customers is way behind on payments. And so even if investors cheer, customers are not happy. It's not fair at all for anyone, especially like lower income. This month, my bill was 220, which was off the hook. I get to the point where I'm so disgusted. Well, the second positive change, at least, is Diablo Canyon. The state is keeping it open until 2030, despite protests from environmentalists. The plant supplies 9% of California's power, and the governor, who wanted to close it, uh, instead now wants to keep it open to avoid rolling blackouts. Even better, the Biden administration can provide up to a billion dollars to help offset the cost of staying open. As you mentioned earlier, PG&D has also reinstated its dividend. It's also issued $2 billion in convertible debt in December at 8% interest. So much to talk about, guys. And the CEO will be on with Kramer at Mad Money. Yeah, yeah we're looking positive. For- oh, sorry, Carl. I was just going to say, say, as a fellow California resident, Jane, good for investors, but I've certainly seen those raising bills as well, rising bills as well. Jane, thanks. Look forward to that interview tonight. Meantime, European markets climbing to some new record highs today as the downturn in business activity eased in the region. Eurozone composite PMI above expectations. Number still in contraction for the ninth consecutive month due to a manufacturing drag. But services did break a six-month contraction streak. Global markets also rallying in Japan. You probably heard by now a new record high. Breaking levels not seen since 1989. Although, uh, D, the IMF today says they're going to have to take some of the Japan uh, macro data and incorporate that into their forecast in the coming weeks. Right. Um, According to a Bank of America survey, the Japan trade has been the third most popular trade this year behind China shorts and the Meg 7. And, you know, Japan's gain has sort of been China's loss, right? Levels that we haven't seen since that route in 2015. Let's get to a news update now. Bertha Coombs has that for us. Bertha. Hi, Deirdre. The U.S. charged a Navy sailor based in Japan with espionage. He's accused of passing national defense documents to an employee of a foreign government at least seven times between November 2022 and May 2023. The chief petty officer fire controlman was assigned to the guided missile destroyer USS Higgins. Russian President Vladimir Putin sent a message to the West today by taking a flight on one of his country's newest nuclear-capable bombers. The flight comes as tensions are heightened between Moscow and Washington following the mysterious death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny and Russia's continuing war with Ukraine now entering its 
third year. Putin called the bomber reliable and easier to control following the 30-minute flight. Florida lawmakers sent a bill to Governor Ron DeSantis's desk that would ban social media for anyone under the age of 16. If it becomes law, it would prevent young people from creating new accounts and provide options to get rid of their existing online profiles. DeSantis previously said he approved of the measure, but that he worried it may not hold up in court. Not to mention the ruckus it would create with teens. (laughs) Can you imagine getting 16-year-olds riled up like that? Uh, There'll definitely be some kitchen table discussion if we get there, Uh, Bertha. Thanks, Uh, Bertha Coombs. Coming up after the break, an upgrade of Norfolk Southern and this warning letter from the Federal Railroad Administration inside the activist battle taking place at that company in a moment. Let's turn to this bull call from the desk of Barclays today, upgrading Norfolk Southern to overweight, encouraged by some of the recent activism from Ancora. The analyst behind that call joins us today, Barclays' Brandon Oklensky, uh, live from Barclays Industrial Select Conference, Industrial Conference in Miami Beach. Brandon, great to have you. Interesting uh, sort of story happening here with the activists, the slate, and I guess in your view, the possibility that the insular culture might be disrupted, right? Yeah, Carl, and uh, thanks for having us on. And we're actually here at our 41st annual industrial select conference uh, in South Beach and actually had all the railroad management teams here the past two days. And yeah, I mean, if you look at Norfolk results, I I know it was very unfortunate for the existing management team and Alan Shaw's CEO to have that derailment last year and then the subsequent, uh, you know, challenges in East Palestine. But nonetheless, uh, the operational results here are trailing by about 400 to 500 basis points on an operating profitability basis. And as we've seen across this industry in the last 10 to 15 years, there's really no structural impediments that any railroad should be really off the average margin of the industry. So there's quite a bit of earnings power to be picked up here. We think a renewed uh, focus on operations, running trains on time, and you know potentially a CEO like Jim Barber that Ancora has nominated. Uh, you know, folks know him very well from UPS. He drove best-in-class profitability in their international business. And COO Jamie Boychuk just ran CSX, best-in-class operations. They deliver on time for customers. So I think there's a lot to talk about here. How, how difficult is it to improve efficiency when you're so much under the microscope regarding safety? Um, yeah, that's not easy. I mean, I, I think Ancora even laid it out in their slide deck. They're not really just looking to come in and, and cut costs. This is more about how do we reallocate the resources that we have how do we run more volume with fewer cars online? The, the idea here, it's, it's pretty simple. We're seeing this happen right now at Union Pacific. You know, recall they have a new CEO, Jim Vena, who started, uh, you know, five or six months ago. This happened at CSX back in 2017 with Mr. Hunter Harrison. Mr. Harrison did this at CP in 2012. It's, it's about reducing congestion in the yards. It's really delivering for customers on time. And you actually can generate more volume with fewer assets, which means you know, you have fewer train starts, you have fewer uh, occurrences for safety. And we think CP, I mean, I just got off stage with Keith Friel, CEO of CP. They literally have the industry's best safety record, and that is their strategy. If we run most efficient, then we have fewer occurrences. 
Hey, Brandon, good morning. It's Deirdre. Um, let's talk about some of the changes that the activist investor is going to be pushing for. You mentioned a potential new CEO. How likely is it that he comes into the position? And as you noted in your note, he doesn't have any direct railroad operating experience, though obviously a lot of experience at another logistics multinational like UPS. How does that translate if it does happen into Norfolk's culture? Well, it, great question, Deidre. Uh, look, Jim ran the international organization at UPS and, and drove it to best-in-class profitability, better than FedEx, better than DHL. So we think you know, he'll come with a lot of respect and understanding how transportation networks work and how to drive asset efficiency. So I think um, that the combination here with Jamie Boychuk, they're, they're proposing him as COO. Jamie most recently was running operations at CSX, and we just don't want to look any farther than that, because this is the Eastern Railroad competitor of Norfolk. They're running on-time arrivals, you know, north of 90% today. Norfolk is, you know, somewhere below 80%. So we, we think there's a, a big difference there. And bringing in Jim, uh, you know, at the top and, and Jamie as the operator, I think is a pretty powerful combination for the outlook at Norfolk. Overall, Brandon, um, where are we right now regarding sort of the trajectory of uh, volume trends? And what sort of macro signal does that give us right now about about the U.S. economy, at least? You know, and we've been hearing that from from every transport company here uh, outside of maybe J.B. Hunt. Uh, I think most management teams will tell you we're finally out of the freight recession. You know, recall we we got whipsawed so much uh, from retail destocking uh, across the supply chain the last 12 to 18 months. Volumes are actually coming back. You see the port activity, especially on the West Coast, up double digits right now. So. We're, we're, I think, uh, at a pivot point here, and we're going to see better rail volumes uh, in 2024. Yeah, a lot of, uh, of bullwhip charts regarding inventories, that's for sure, yep. circulating around. Brandon, good stuff. I uh, appreciate that. Brandon Alensi over at Barclays. See? Thank you. Up next, FTX bankruptcy proceedings could free up a stake in Silicon Valley's hottest AI company, or at least one of them. We'll look into that, plus a programming note. Do not miss Jamie Dimon live from the J.P. Morgan's Global High Yield and Leverage Finance Conference in Miami Beach on Monday. Stay with us. We're back in a few. Welcome back. A stake in one of... Welcome back. A stake in one of the buzziest AI startups could soon become available because of, get this, an FTX bankruptcy hearing. Kate Rooney here with me at One Market. Never ends. It never they're ends. Still, they're still short, sorting through the wreckage. Exactly. And part of that might benefit some of the tech investors who have really been clamoring, D, to get a piece of these AI startups, especially Anthropic, which is backed by Amazon and Google, among others. The collapse of crypto exchange FTX might give them another shot at getting a slice of that company. 8% of Anthropic is owned by the now bankrupt crypto exchange FTX. That purchase was made by the former CEO of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, who was convicted of fraud, you might remember, and conspiracy late last year. He was illegally siphoning customer money to invest in high-flying startups, including Anthropic. Today, a bankruptcy court in Delaware will rule on whether that stake can actually be sold and then used to pay back customers and creditors. Anthropic was founded by two entrepreneurs who, like Sam Bankman-Fried, were part of this movement called Effective Altruism, meaning they supported the idea of making as much money as you can to give it all away. Bankman-Fried's criminal activity, though, did bring some negative attention to that idea. Some of Anthropic's numbers in the court case are redacted, but FTX's stake based on Anthropic's last reported valuation is worth an estimated $1.4 billion. It's roughly tripled in value 
since SBF invested back in 2022. It was a $500 million investment at the time before the release of OpenAI's ChatGPT and the subsequent arms race we've seen in AI funding. A judge is going to rule on that anthropic sale later today. Investors I've been talking to expect this all to happen behind closed doors, maybe to some sort of institutional investor, possibly a strategic investor or existing big tech company. I'm sure they're lining up to get this stake. Investors have had their eye on this holding. And the team's goal, though, is to fetch the highest price here and then use that money to help pay back FTX losses, D. I mean, Kate, we've been talking about the valuations of these darling gen AI companies like an open AI, like an Anthropic. And the reported valuation of Anthropic, I think the latest is between 20 and 30 billion dollars, which would represent a forward looking multiple of 200 times its you know, reported yeah. revenue, which is just gigantic. And it raises the question, who can buy yeah. this? VCs are not in those types of valuations. It's, as you said, yeah. an Amazon and a Google who I don't know if they're yeah. going to be making those investments because Lena Khan and the FTC is starting to look at them. All good points. One of the interesting things I've heard lately from some investors, the rule of 40 that you often think of for software investing for AI is completely out the window because the growth rate is so exponential if these companies are successful. So the ones that can afford to do this, Ding, ding, ding. Amazon, big I'm, tech, because also they can invest with cloud look, credits. Guess which what? We've the margins about. may be smaller as yeah. well with these generative AI companies. There exactly. was a really interesting report from the information about a month ago saying that they may not yeah. be like software margins. So exactly. this will be an interesting test for yeah. the generative AI funding bubble. That You're likely going to see this happen behind the scenes, though. Yeah. You're not going to see this as sort of an auction in secondary markets. You can bet that some of these strategic investors, whether it's big tech or potentially Menlo Ventures or one of the, the companies that's an existing investor, has their eye on this 8% stake, knowing that there are only a few opportunities to get in here. But I mean, absolutely all eyes on who yeah. gets this slice. And it's wild that it's opened up based on, based a on the way we got here is, exactly. is wild. And it, it was crazy. a good investment by. Yeah, Sam I know. <laughs> Sam Bankman. <-Fried>. Sam Bankman. <laughs> Sorry. Too many Sams. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Bernie, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Carl. Meantime, guys, uh, Bernstein estimating airline demand will have grown 15 to 20 percent by this summer when you compare it to 2019 levels. And that has helped companies like Frontier, which has seen its stock rally more than 30 percent this year alone. CEO is going to break down the travel trade in a minute. Let's close out the hour with a check on the state of the airline sector and what to expect from demand as we move closer to spring and summer eventually. Joining us this morning, Frontier's Chief Barry Biffle from the Barclays Industrial Select Conference. Barry, great to have you back. I know we're sort of in this uh, seasonal low point of the year, uh, but got some decent guidance from one of the cruise lines today. And I wonder, do you think that's a tell about what spring and summer are going to bring? I think demand remains good. I mean, look, employment's good, so the consumer remains very strong. We're seeing really good demand as we move through the through the spring and into the early summer bookings. And uh, in Frontier's case, one of the things that we're doing that's very unique is we're pivoting away from kind of your oversupply in Florida. We're doing much more in overpriced, underserved markets all over the United States. And so we've probably got more tailwinds uh, than anyone else in the space. And that's on top of all the things that we're doing from a frequent flyer perspective. We just launched a, a, new, a new credit card. We've got a premium economy product we just launched, our new biz fair. So we just got a lot of momentum and tailwinds that we're really excited about that we think is going to be really good for demand. So talk about some of the markets where you can afford to be a little more aggressive. Is this about Cleveland and Philly? And how aggressive do you get? What impact does that have on pricing overall? Well, I've personally been in Philadelphia as well as Cleveland uh, recently. 
um, announcing new service, and, and we're really excited about it. I mean, if you look at Philadelphia, we have a we have a base there. We've been growing for years. Uh, we had t- 29 services, 29 nonstop services today, going to 39. And so when you look at Philadelphia, we're just going to serve more and more places that, that people were priced out, most likely, uh, from flying. You've got markets to uh, Pittsburgh to Philly. You've got Indianapolis, Kansas City, and all these places that, you know, many of the, the, the round-trip fares are like $500 per person. So, you know, if you're a family of four we're looking to go see grandma, that just didn't happen. So you were likely driving or not going. And so we're going to stimulate that demand, so there'll be even more in those places. Cleveland, same thing. I mean, you've got in Cleveland, we're the largest carrier in terms of nonstop routes. Um, but in many cases, there's not even a nonstop flight. Uh, so so we're just we're not only serving places that are expensive, but in some cases, they just don't have nonstop service. So we're really excited. I mean, Cleveland's excited about it. I mean, um, great, great, uh, great city. Same thing in Cincinnati. We're expanding there as well, as well as San Juan, Puerto Rico. Barry, you mentioned that you're adding premium economy business seats. I wonder if you can give us any color as to what you're seeing versus in the high end versus low end demand from consumers. Yeah, so, so we're seeing the, the premium economy is, is very popular. There's there's a lot of demand for that. Um, our BizFair product that we just launched is really about, you know, kind of small businesses and kind of getting them the savings that we've been giving to consumers on a leisure perspective. But uh, with a lot of the places that we're flying, take Cleveland and Cincinnati, for example, you know, the businesses are saying, hey, we need a, the ability to buy through a travel agency or through a managed product. And so launching that that one low price for, for a bag, a seat, and free changes is, is what uh, – our expansion in, in that space is all about. So we want to serve small businesses as well as leisure consumers. Streets getting a little, uh, I wouldn't say nervous, but definitely attentive to energy prices. Uh, gasoline inventory is more of a story right now. Do you do you see danger ahead as we work our way into the middle of the year? Oh, look, I mean, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not the expert on, on the oil um, trading, but, uh, you know, like I think you look at overall demand, I think where China's just not there. And so I think you've got a pretty good supply. I know there's all these geopolitical concerns, but the truth is, is we're well supplied today. Uh, so I, I suspect that you won't see um, big spikes unless something catastrophic happens. But uh, it looks very balanced. Finally, when it comes to capacity growth, you know, for a long time we we talked about equipment and labor and availability of pilots and mechanics. Is the needle moving on on the industry's ability to grow capacity this year? Yeah, so we've seen, you know, all of those labor shortages um, kind of subside now, right? I mean, um, we've seen attrition fall in just about every category and every base and in every um, uh, position. And so we're finally seeing just a normalization uh, of all that. So I think that's helping not just the airlines, but all types of service industries and manufacturers. Uh, so you're seeing a more stable workforce. Well, your point about employment is good. Uh, good to get your take on oil and, and gas. And, uh, and we'll see what happens uh, with uh, demand uh, through the course of the year. It's going to be nice to get back to normal in some sense, Barry. Good to see you. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having us on. Barry Biffle over at Frontier. Dave. Meanwhile, Wall Street is buzzing about Google today and the trouble with its AI technology. Google is now pausing Gemini's AI image creation feature after users pointed out it generated images of historical figures such as U.S. founding fathers as people of color. Google posting to X, quote, Gemini's AI image generation does generate a wide range of people, and that's generally a good thing because people around the world use it, but it is missing the mark here. The company is now working to re-release and improve version. Carl, Google has taken a very different tact here, slow and steady, and they've really, Senator Pichai himself has highlighted that they're going to take a cautious approach to get it right 
but they're not. You know, with everything that they're trying to do here, they had to rebrand it Gemini. They were kind of late to the game. Let ChatGPT and OpenAI have that big mainstream AI moment. And it's happening again, 18, 20 months into this cycle. Uh, it definitely does show the challenge, uh, D, even though the market's so excited about the possibility of selling those bricks, uh, uh, picks and shovels from the likes of NVIDIA, actually implementing it into a tool that is safe and reliable and intelligent uh, is, is going to be a haul. It's going to be difficult. By the way, I don't know if you noticed a, a piece crossing the tape a few moments ago that the market cap of NVIDIA has now surpassed. <laughs> I'm thinking of you. My home country, <laughs> Canada. The GDP oh, of Canada. Canada. It's just an incredible figure. And also, we haven't talked much over the last few hours about NVIDIA's valuation. You think about a company that has added more than a trillion dollars to its market cap over the last 12 months and is still going yet because of its earnings, because of this, these revenue streams, still considered cheap compared to some of the other chip companies in terms of that price to earnings ratio. It's incredible. Uh uh, pretty fascinating. Obviously, a huge catalyst for the market today. Got some Fed speak going into tonight, but we're going to keep an eye on how NVIDIA finishes the session and, and what a wild week it's been. Let's get to post nine, uh, the judge and the half. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.